Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Good Network. Today, we're bringing to you our interview with author and documentarian Sebastian Younger. You may be familiar with his work on the documentary Restrepo or his book Tribe. Sebastian is a guy that has put himself in harm's way time after time, country after country, to report back what's truly going on overseas in war-torn countries. He has a unique perspective on not only the current situation in the multiple wars that America is in, but on society, on culture, and on humanity. It was an honor to have Sebastian on the podcast. He's an author that I follow closely, and I'm really excited to bring to you my good conversation with Sebastian Younger. Welcome to the Good Network. Uh, today we've got author, documentarian Sebastian Younger on as a guest. So, uh, Sebastian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, man, happy to have you on. Um, and then, so quickly, or not quickly, I guess we can take a little bit of time. But for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with your work, uh, why don't you kind of run through what you do, how you do it, and kind of what got you started? Anthropology in college, cultural anthropology, and I did my field work on the Navajo Reservation, and um, I wrote a thesis about Navajo long-distance runners. I was a really good distance runner when I was young, and I trained with their best guys, and that got me writing, got me thinking in terms of going out into the world and trying to understand something and bringing it back, bringing it home, writing writing about it in a way that was understandable and compelling, which is essentially journalism. So I embarked on my early 20s to be a journalist, and I had sort of varying success, and I wound up um, uh, varying success, that is to say, it didn't work very well, and so I wound up as a climber for tree companies, I was an arborist, and I worked, you know, 50, 80 feet in the air, with, hanging on a rope with a chainsaw, taking trees down, and I got hurt pretty badly doing it, and it got me thinking about dangerous jobs, and how this nation, you know, runs on dangerous jobs, and can kill people all the time, but they don't really get acknowledged for the risks that they take, or sort of honored for for their work, and, and I thought I would write a book on dangerous jobs, and um, I was living in a, a fishing town called Gloucester in Massachusetts, and while I was still recovering from my injury, um, a Gloucester fishing boat with six men was sunk in a huge storm off, off the coast, and uh, 100 foot waves offshore, and, and I decided that you know, maybe one chapter would be on commercial fishing, and so I was still doing, you know, I went back to doing tree work, but I started working on this pro- dangerous jobs project, and one of the jobs I wanted to write about was, um, was commercial fishing, logging, forest firefighting, and war reporting, being a war reporter. And so there was a civil war in Bosnia in the early 90s, you know, obviously it's before the Dayton Peace Accord and, and before the U.S. got there uh, as a peacekeeping force. It was a raging civil war, and I, I, and I went off to Bosnia to Sarajevo, which was under siege, um, to sort of learn, sort of sink or swim, sort of learn how to be a freelance war reporter. And, and I just kept doing it. In between books, I would kept going overseas to Africa. I was in Afghanistan starting in 1996, uh, right when the Taliban were taking over. Um, and I kept going back to Afghanistan. And eventually, 9/11 happened, and I kept going back. And then eventually, I was with American soldiers. And, and uh, you know, I stopped uh, 10 years ago. No, I made the decision to stop eight years ago after my 
seven years ago, after my friend and colleague Tim Hetherington was killed in Libya. Um, he's the guy I made Restrepo with. Um, the last time I was actually in combat was a decade ago. So there's a lot to kind of dissect there. Um, so I first heard of your work or saw your work was watching Restrepo and then I watched Korengal and then that was probably like 2011, 12-ish. And after that, I started reading the books. So Fire and War and most recently Tribe. And I, I think it's it's pretty powerful to know that you're a guy that's that's seen some of the worst parts of what humanity can do. And you've been able to show it in a way that everybody needs to know about it. And is there, do you feel like you almost had like responsibility to, to report it and to tell people what was really going on outside of the comfortable life that we live here in America? Well, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's a complicated equation. The, the, uh, warfare basically, um, takes bad human behavior and allows it to, um, it sort of scales it up so that it's being carried out on a societal scale. Uh, so, you know, America, I mean, you know, my father grew up in Europe and, and, uh, and he came to this country during the war in America, in his opinion, he was an art pacifist, but in his opinion, America saved the world from fascism. But in doing so, it, we, we killed something like a million civilians, uh, from air, with aerial bombardment and a lot, a lot, a lot of it intentionally. And, so that you know, that's extremely bad behavior uh, on a societal scale. But scale, and it has to be that has to be written about and acknowledged, uh, particularly in a democracy. But um, and likewise, the sort of brush fire wars in West Africa and, and the civil war in Afghanistan before we got there, and on and on. I mean, it all has to be documented because otherwise, the world won't even know that there's a problem that it has to fix. Uh, and the problem in Bosnia was fixed by NATO intervention. You know, it took three years and 100,000 lives, you know, 100,000 civilian lives, but eventually NATO stopped that, um, what was basically genocide. And, and so, yes, these things have to be written about. Um, but the other side of the coin is that, um, that there are enormously good and admirable and inspiring human behaviors in warfare as well. And what, you know, what you find, what, psych what psychologists and sociologists will tell you is that as, as things get worse, people act better. One of the problems with a peaceful, uh, an easy, peaceful modern modern society is that circumstances are so good that if they they rarely call upon people on people's better angels. They rarely call upon people to make sacrifices for other people to act collectively to think of the the public good, the common good. We rarely are called upon to do that, and and that, there's a real shame there too. And so, you know, there was, I saw a photograph recently of a very sort of wealthy. Sort of three three women who were clearly quite wealthy, um, you know, sort of stepping over a homeless guy on the sidewalk. It looked like New York City. You know, and I don't you know is that better or worse behavior than you know the behavior in warfare? I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I could say it's necessarily better. Um, it's more palatable, but both say profoundly disturbing things about our ability to dissociate our concern of other people from our own experience. you certainly make a good point where 
there's a lot of bad things happening here as well that may not get the attention or may not uh, be looked at as, as kind of on that same playing field as something as as foreign to the common person as warfare. Um, right. And and I was listening to, to your uh, podcast with Joe Rogan probably about a year ago where you guys were talking about how, uh, you know, like people in the New Orleans region say, like, we kind of miss Katrina. And and how that tragedy brought people together, and I think it was almost seen a look back in the fall when Hurricane Harvey came through Texas, and I mean everybody was doing everything they could to try to help, and yeah. we're only five months removed from that, and and I'm sure there's still right. help that needs to be done, but people aren't really thinking about it. certainly see how you'll look back on those moments as we were together and we were working to try to accomplish the same thing we were trying to survive we were trying to make we were trying to improve our situation um is that something that you saw within within the guys that you were that you were embedded with over in in afghanistan some of our american soldiers yeah i mean i've seen that with combats of any you know of any nationality anywhere i mean you don't, you don't survive by yourself in combat. That's I mean, right. Your, your fortune is very much tied to the group that you're with. So you better be a good group member because that, that 
that helps everybody and yourself. So, yeah, not, I mean, not only is that deeply wired in us, but it's reinforced by military training, you know, infantry training. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely saw that uh, with those guys. And then, you know, given the amount of time that you've kind of spent over in, in Afghanistan, kind of pre-9-11, immediately post, and then in the, you know, 2007, 8, 9 range, how did you kind of see that country transform? Well, you know, during the 90s, it was a raging civil war with very, very high civilian casualties, um, high infant mortality rate, maternal uh, mortality rate, uh, very low literacy. I mean, all of these diseases of human, you know, human welfare were sort of rock bottom. And, um, and of course, the Taliban rolled in and imposed a very, um, very, very harsh extremist regime on a population that it wasn't that wasn't really predisposed towards that that kind of extremism at all, and um, and they hated it, but they hated it less than what had preceded it, which was rampant civil war and corruption uh, in the government. And uh, so when the U.S. came in, you know, I spent a lot of time in the north with Massoud, who was fighting the Taliban, and uh, he was far from ideal, but he was an awful lot better than the Taliban were, and. And he, we really owe, America really owes him a lot because he, he kept the patch of Afghanistan free of Taliban rule um, up until and, and through 9-11. He was killed right before 9-11 uh, by al-Qaeda. Uh, but they weren't able to overrun the front lines. So what happened was we had a, America had a, an alliance on the ground with the Northern Alliance. So we did not have to go in the way the Russians did on foot with 10th Mountain or whatever. The Northern Alliance really did our fighting for us in those early days, and we bombed the air. And so all of the, I don't think any American soldiers were killed um, in the fall of Kabul. Uh, I mean, eight journalists were killed and, and hundreds of Northern Alliance fighters. But I don't think any American soldiers died, um, which it was mostly special ops. And thank God, I mean, that was the way to do it. But we were able to do that because we had allies on the ground, and that was thanks to us. So, um, and then what did I see? You know, I saw... Uh, you know, this incredible jubilation in, in Kabul. I mean, I was one of the very first journalists, Western journalists, to get into Kabul on February 13th, I think it was, 2001. Um, you know, it's people dancing in the streets to music and flying kites and all this stuff they couldn't <laughs> do under the Taliban. And, you know, when people found out I was American, they would often come up and hug me and thank me for what our country had done, ridding them of the Taliban. It was an amazing experience. And, you know, and then I, so we, we had the, we had the enormous goodwill of the Afghan population, even the Pashtuns, um, and the Taliban were almost exclusively Pashtun movement. Um, and and we, and we totally squandered it. I mean, the Bush administration just made mistake after mistake. I think because they're mostly focused on Iraq, they made blunder after blunder, and they really turned a, a, an easy win into um, an extremely long, drawn-out, um, I don't want to say defeat, but um, stalemate that has cost thousands thousands of Afghan lives and, and of course American lives. You you're totally right. I think it's I think it's interesting to see how how it's changed. And you know, I haven't served, haven't been overseas like that. Um, but I've I've tried to kind of consume as much of that as I can. And so the the, the initial alliance that we had with Northern Alliance is it's basically the book and now movie Twelve Strong, right? I you know I haven't read it or seen it. Okay. Um, I imagine 
Yeah. Um, and then, so what are some of the, and I think I know this, but for, for some of the listeners, what are some of the takeaways that you've been able to implement into your kind of everyday life and the work you do now based on the experiences that you've had in all these different arenas? Well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm living a very quiet civilian life right now. I mean, I am 56. My war reporting is behind me. Uh, I have a, a 16-month-old baby girl. Uh, I, you know, I'm, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to take those lessons and transpose them onto this, uh, a life like this. But, but one thing that I, that I will say is that um, there's a reason that I and many people I know, including civilians, uh, will say that, that they've never felt more alive than they did in a, in a, in a war zone. Uh, during the war, and and these are often people that, that don't want war, that are glad the war's over with. But they will, and, and I'm one of them. Will say, "Wow, that was that was life with the capital, with capital letters." And um, what it made me understand um, is, and, and I'm not just talking about combat soldiers that that, that that have sort of fallen in love with combat. I mean, even civilians will sort of talk about um, the, the life that they led during war. You know, civilians in Sarajevo, for example, um, that they were close, that they, they existed more communally. They were closer with each other. They were, they were more generous. Um, Afghan society was not a modern society, so I, so they were already living in, 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 with an enormous amount of intimacy and communalism within their daily life. So for them, I think warfare is just is pure. You know, it's, it's, it's completely a curse. But but for a modern Western society. The warfare reverts you to living in a basement with your, you know, with your other flat apartment mates and whatever. There, there is a, there is an upside to it, and the upside is that you're living communally again, and that seems to invigorate everybody, almost everybody. And um, so, what? So, long answer to your question, but what I, what I've taken from that is that it's extremely important, even with the blessings, particularly with the blessings of a safe modern society. Uh, that you make sure to try to institute some communal energy in your life. Um, that you, that you, uh, I think social media is, is um, horribly misnamed. I think it's anti-social media. I think it disconnects people. I think sub- the suburbs disconnect people. Uh, developments disconnect people. I think the car disconnects people. I, mean, I, I, mean, I think modern society has created all these things that actually pull human, human relations apart. And, um, and that's in my opinion, why we have such an incredibly high suicide rate and depression rate, mass shootings, uh, opioid addiction. I mean, you know, we're the wealthiest, most powerful society in the world, and we have unbelievably high rates of, um, of mental illness and, um, and, and addiction uh, and, and suicide. It's extraordinary. And I think that's a lack of human connection. So what I'm trying to do in my life is, like, not fall prey to that. And I certainly don't want my daughter to. Right. And, and I think that inherently people want to do what's hard and they want to do that with other people. And and you have that kind of sense of accomplishment when you come together as a group to to accomplish whatever it is you set out to accomplish, um, which speaks to everything that you just said. And, and obviously, like the goals that a combat unit has or the goals that, that a sports team has or, or almost anything like that. Um, 
So you mentioned it a little bit earlier, you know, one of your very close friends and, and colleagues, uh, Tim Hetherington, was killed overseas in Libya, you know, after you guys had worked together and spent time over in Afghanistan and created Restrepo. Um, and then the impact that that's had on you, you've turned around and created this foundation called Risk. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Tim, Tim and I were supposed to go on assignment for Vanity Fair to cover the Libyan Civil War in 2011, right after we read the Oscars for Restrepo. Uh, we didn't win, obviously. We were <laughs> nominated. It was really thrilling, and there was a red carpet, and lots of, lots of nice-looking people with nice clothing and all, whatever. You know, it was like a hitting experience, you know. And immediately afterwards, we were supposed to go on assignment, and in the last minute, I couldn't go for personal reasons. He went on his own. And he was killed in the city of Misrata by a mortar, uh, a mortar that was fired by Gaddafi's forces uh, a few blocks away. This sort of street-to-street fighting that was going on there, and he, he just bled out in the back of a pickup truck, rebel pickup truck, racing for the Misrata hospital along with some dead and dying rebel fighters and another journalist uh, named Chris Hondros. And you know, he, he missed it. He missed having the rest of his life by a few minutes. Um, and uh, and someone even known to put their knee in his wound and try to stop the blood loss, he might have made it. And I realized that had I been with him, I might not have, you know, freelance journalists don't get medical training. You know, we're not soldiers. Uh, and we don't get a medical kit and medical training. We you know, these, you know a lot of young people, very brave young people, are going off into these war zones, you know, really ill-equipped to save themselves or others if um, if they're wounded. So I decided to start a nonprofit called Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues. Website is risktraining.org, and um, its mission is to train experienced freelance war reporters and equip them. Uh, it's a, it's a um, four-day intensive course. We pay the hotel, we pay the training, we pay for the medical kit, uh, uh, so that train them and equip them so that they can work safely or more safely. And how? So that's been going for five, six years now. Yeah, we had the first one on the one-year anniversary of Tim's death, uh, and so that would have been 2012, so we're 2018, so yeah, six years. There's one uh, that just wrapped up in, um, in Brazil. Uh, we take risks all, all around the world to train both local and uh, Western reporters, um, and we just did one. We're sort of concentrating on South America right now. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there right now, and, and we're trying to uh, I think that's like an unbelievably important cause to, to kind of stand in front of and that, you know, I work in, in a medical field and so I think I have, I have a pretty good idea of, of first aid and, and what to do in a situation like that. Granted, I've never been in combat or around it. Right. Um, but I think that this is something unbelievably important that, that more and more people need to know about and and it's something that we at the good network are are going to help try to promote and and share with our listeners and then um once we release this episode what something we like to do is kind of based on our first 24 hours of of like plays and downloads and all that we're going to turn around and make a donation kind of comparable to to our immediate uh viewership so We'll, uh, 
so that's something that we're going to do for this. Once once this gets put out, we'll uh, you know in a couple of days from now, uh, we'll make a donation to Risk, kind of on behalf of the Good Network and our listeners. Oh, thank you. That's really generous. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm really touched by that. Um, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's something we we want to help. We want to be able to to kind of turn around and say we we support what you're doing and and the work that you're doing to to make sure the people that are volunteering to go report what's actually happening in the world can do so and they can do it safely. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. We're, we're happy to, uh, to play a small role in it. Um, what all do you guys do as far as like a medical kit? What does that kind of look like? You know, it's based on, um, I don't have one in front of me, so I, excited to, to kind of see what we can do for you um, and kind of work together in the future. Um, but Sebastian, you know, that's that's all I got for you. I think it's it's awesome to have you as part of the Good Network, and we're excited to put this episode out and, and see what kind of response we get. Um, and, you know, to it, personally, me speaking, you know, it's been really an honor to talk to you because I've followed your work pretty closely over the last few years, and I'm a big fan of your writing and, and all that. So it's it's really cool to talk to you. Oh, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed the conversation. And uh, hey, good luck to you. Yeah, it was, they were good topics. Mm-hmm.